talking about Noah and the Ark, which is probably a story you're pretty familiar with. Uh, it is among one of the most misunderstood stories in Genesis and maybe the entire Old Testament. Um, in recent history, it's been seen either as like this fun kid's story about animals and a boat and a rainbow at the end, or it's been sort of described as this horrifying story of a barbaric and violent God. It's sort of been one or the other. It has been both of those things in my life at various points in my journey, uh, but neither approach does this story justice. When we understand the flood story in its historical context, uh, we see that this story is actually contains revolutionary ideas about the sacredness of life and God's love and commitment to human flourishing. Now you might be thinking, how can a story about God killing everyone, but one family have anything to do with human flourishing is counterintuitive, right? On the surface, especially to our modern sensibilities, but it makes sense if we approach and understand this text with ancient eyes, which is what we've been trying to do throughout this series uh, in Genesis. Uh, to do that with this story specifically, first, we need to understand a few things. Um, first, this is not the only story about a great flood that we have from the ancient Near East, from the area that Israel was located and its surrounding neighbors. Um, I read somewhere that there are as many as nine different stories uh, or records of a cataclysmic flood occurring long time ago. It seems very apparent that somewhere in the ancient history of Mesopotamia, there was a catastrophic flood that resulted in a massive loss of life. And as you can imagine, after something that horrific and perhaps unprecedented, people would be grappling to explain why such a thing happened. Why did this happen to us? And various cultures came up with various explanations for why the flood occurred. The Hebrew story of Noah and the ark is one of those stories. It shares many similarities with the stories from its neighbors, especially the version that dominated the surrounding cultures, which can be found in uh, the Babylonian epics of Atrahasis and Gilgamesh. Um, but while the, while the story in Genesis that we have shares many of the details of this Babylonian version, uh, the most important features that we, that, that matter the most to us are going to be where the stories differ. The most important details are where the Hebrew, the, the story in Genesis that we have confronts and corrects the dominant narrative that was just in the air in the time that this story was first written down and received. To see these confrontations, we need to understand the dominant flood narrative that this story in Genesis, the context of the story in Genesis was uh, passed down through. So I'm just going to give you an overview of what the surrounding cultures flood story was. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Genesis two. I told you about the beginning of the Epic of Atrahasis, which basically talks about the creation of humans. Humans came about through uh, mud being mixed with the blood and guts of a sacrificed God being put together. Humans were created to be slaves for the gods um, to do all the hard work for them. They were basically the bottom of the rung. That's where we left off that story. The gods have created humans to do their work for them. That goes okay for a while until the high God starts to get annoyed at all the noise that humans are creating. 
it's literally what it says. He gets angry at all the noise. Uh, that kind of, we, we think means that what they're trying to convey is like humanity's population has exploded. They're loud as humans tend to be, and they're bothering the gods with their problems. So to try to keep humanity in check, the gods um, send all these terrible things. They make some, some of the women barren. Uh, they send a demon to snatch away uh, newborns. They forbid some women from marrying and therefore becoming pregnant along with sending some plagues and famine and other lovely things like that. When that doesn't do the trick, the high God who, who controls the weather decides that, you know what? Enough is enough. It's time to just destroy humanity with a flood. The other gods agree. There's tons of gods in this cosmology. The other gods agree and they make a vow not to warn any of the humans ahead of time. One of the gods, the God of the sea decides to break rank and he tells his favorite human what's about to happen. Who's the hero of this story. He tells him to build a huge boat. He gives him the exact dimensions that that boat should be. Tells him to fill it with his family and animals and plants. And the hero listens. He does so. And he's kept from, he's kept safe from this raging storm that floods the earth. During the flood, all the rest of the gods start to worry because they're going hungry. Now that there are no humans around to make and bring them food. They didn't think about that ahead of time with all the humans destroyed. Eventually the waters recede and our hero safely emerges from his boat with his family. He makes an animal sacrifice to the gods, which all the starving gods smell and they, they swarm around. It says like flies eating up this sacrifice. And they realize how short sighted they were in agreeing to kill humanity. The high God whose idea this whole thing was shows up and he's furious that, that a human has survived, but the other gods quickly make him realize how foolish it was for them to do away with human humanity since they have nothing to eat without humans. Uh, so the high God agrees to never annihilate all of humanity again. And he assures this by making the hero and his wife immortal. So he doesn't promise that he'll never kill everyone again. He says, let's make these two immortal so that if we have to do this again, they'll survive. That's the end of the story. This was the story that everyone in Mesopotamia had heard and probably believed about what happened with the great flood. Think about the worldview <laughs> that this story instills into people. Human life has no inherent value beyond its utility for labor and keeping the gods fed and happy. Humans are helpless victims for capricious gods. Capricious means uh, inconsistent or unpredictable or unstable. Humans are helpless victims to capricious gods who at any point for any reason can just decide to kill everyone. Imagine living day to day, believing that like at any point, everyone could just be dead. <laughs> This is especially true if humans annoy the gods by getting too noisy. If humanity flourishes just a little bit too much, the gods will keep them in check uh, by mass genocide. If need be, we can't get too ratty or the gods will kill us. We need to just keep our heads down and keep them happy. There'd be this constant level of anxiety, never knowing if, if this terrible thing was going to happen again. Can you imagine if this is, if you believed that this is what happened, could you imagine how traumatizing it would be? Every time it rained, you'd just be wondering like, oh, here we go again. Is everyone I know about to die? 
this idea that we just have to kind of like keep the gods happy and not do too much combined with the disregard for human life. That's already inherent in this belief system. This would create a scarcity mentality around human flourishing. The gods get mad. If we get too big, if we get too great, if we grow too much, there's only so much flourishing to go around. If we want to thrive, that means we got to keep everything in balance, which means we got to kill other people. We got to kill other cultures. We got to kill other kingdoms so that the gods don't get mad. If another culture gets too advanced, we need to wipe them out to keep the gods happy or they're going to kill us all again. Embedded into this story is a direct link between killing other people and keeping gods happy, which is just like the most depressing thing. This is the dominant understanding of the flood that Israel's neighbors held to. And it seems apparent that, that the people of Israel are aware of this story and under the inspiration of God, they turn this story on its head and they give us the story that we find in Genesis six through nine, which is the story of Noah and the ark, which I'm, we're not going to read the whole thing together. I'm just going to quickly recap before you. We're going to look at the very end together tonight. Uh, So many generations after the first humans, hundreds of years were introduced. All of a sudden we sort of fast forward through time. We're introduced to our hero, Noah, who is described as a righteous man that walked with God. And as righteous as Noah was, the rest of the world is in really bad shape. Evil has consumed humanity. uh, It says something along the lines of every inclination of every heart is towards evil and violence. So much so that, that it says God regrets creation. He looks at all of the violence and regrets that he created humanity. And he decides to start over again with Noah and his family. So he tells Noah to build a huge boat called an ark. He tells him the exact dimensions to build it. He tells him to fill it with his family and animals and plants. And Noah does so. The rains come, the earth floods. And after 40 days and 40 nights, the waters stop. And they begin to recede. And eventually the ark hits dry land and Noah and his family, along with all of the animals come out. And we're going to read directly what happens next here, how God responds to all of this. We're going to pick up in Genesis chapter nine, beginning at verse one. They've just come out of the ark. God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said, prosper, reproduce, fill the earth. Every living creature, birds, animals, fish will all fall fall under your spell and be afraid of you. You're responsible for them. All the living creatures are yours for food. Just as I gave you the plants. Now I give you everything else except for meat with its lifeblood in it. Don't eat that, which basically just means drain meat of its blood before you eat it, which we know is just a sanitary way to prepare meat. He continues, but your lifeblood, I will avenge. I will avenge it against both animals and other humans. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, let his blood be shed because God made humans in his image, reflecting God's very nature. You're here to bear fruit, reproduce, Lavish life on the earth, live bountifully. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons. He said, I'm setting up a covenant with you, including your children who will come after you, along with everything alive around you, birds, farm animals, wild animals, everything that came out of the ship with you. I'm setting up my covenant with you and will never, and that never again will everything living be destroyed by floodwaters. 
No, never again will a flood destroy the earth. God continued, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living thing around you and everything, everyone living after you. I'm putting my rainbow in the clouds, a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. From now on, when I form a cloud over the earth and the rainbow appears in the cloud, I'll remember my covenant between me and you and everything living that never again will the floodwaters destroy all life. When the rainbow appears in the cloud, I'll see it and remember the eternal covenant between God and every, everything living, every last living creature on earth. So I want to just with the remainder of the time, talk about a couple of things that God brings up in this covenant that he makes with Noah as they embark off the ark. Ooh, embark off the ark. I didn't write that down. That just came to me. You're welcome. This is my full-time job. Um, Okay. So the first thing I want to talk about is the rainbow. Now, I don't know if you know what this was actually supposed to be. It's very straightforward, but I realized that I learned this story as a child and it was like on flannel graph. And it was, this was like the fun part of the story where look, there's a beautiful rainbow in the sky. And I thought it's called a rainbow because it sort of just makes this like arch in the sky. I thought that a bow was another word for an arch but this is supposed to literally be a bow, like a bow and arrow. I never knew that. This is supposed to literally be a weapon. This is God's weapon that he is hanging up in the sky. And Jewish people for thousands of years have noted how the bow is pointed away from the earth, away from humanity, back toward God. God is pointing this weapon back at himself just as soldiers would invert their weapons in their hands when calling for peace, God keeps his bow inverted, committing to peace with the earth. In other cultures, the rainbow was an omen from the gods, which means it could be good or it could be bad, depending on where it was in the sky, depending on what time of day it was, depending on a whole bunch of other things. And you never knew what it meant. You had to have some priest or someone who could read the signs tell you what it meant the gods were confusing and they had to be interpreted and they weren't straightforward. In our version of this story, God doesn't leave any ambiguity to what this sign means. He tells us what it means. We don't need anyone to tell us. It always means the same thing every time. And that is that God is reassuring his people that he will never destroy creation with a flood again. Imagine that you are someone who is just a couple generations removed from this flood and it's what you hear about this story over and over and over again. Think about how much anxiety this would alleviate, especially those first few rains. Like once you see that rainbow in the sky, you're assured like, oh, everything's okay. We're all going to be okay. This is even more true when you consider that in this story, rain has never occurred before (laughs) until the flood. People had never seen rain before in this story until the flood happens. So every time after that would be a terrifying thing, except for that they have this sign from God that means I've got you. We're at peace. Uh, the, the symbol of peace reminding, it, it reminds God. God says that it's not for our benefit even. It's to remind him And secondarily to remind us of God's promise and give everyone assurance 
that he is on our side, that there's not going to be another flood. And then God says, well, the rainbow is kind of the, the, we went in reverse order. The rainbow happened last. Now we're going to talk about the first thing that God says to them. As soon as they get out of the boat, he tells them to multiply, to fill the earth, to reproduce. He literally repeats the same command that he gave to the very first humans back in Genesis one, fill the earth, reproduce, flourish. And then he gives them resources to do that. He says before you could only eat plants. Now you can eat all the animals as long as you train the blood beforehand. And on top of that, he says, human life is so precious and so sacred because you are created in my image that no one can kill a human. He, he immediately addresses the violence that occurred beforehand that caused him to bring this flood in the first place and says, if anyone animal or human takes the life of another human, that animal or human should be put to death. It's the beginning of like civilization. Can you see how these stories, the, the dominant story and then the story in Genesis, how they have similar things happening, but they promote diametrically opposed visions of human flourishing. The dominant story instills a sense of fear and anxiety into people. And it literally promotes violence and destruction to appease these capricious gods. And the Hebrew story instills a sense of peace and, and, and stability into humanity, laying the groundwork, literally laying the groundwork for civilization. You cannot have a civilized, successful society if everyone goes around killing each other, right? He literally promotes the, the sanctity of human life created in the image of a loving, consistent, and trustworthy God. That's not just going to decide on a whim to kill everyone again. A God who commands and blesses human flourishing while strictly prohibiting violence and destruction of human life. This one story says human flourishing is terrible. A thing that the gods hate, a thing that we have to keep in check. The other says human flourishing is the point and it's what we should all be for because it's what God wants. Ironically, this story about a massive loss of human life is all about God's commitment to human flourishing. That's the message behind the story of the flood. Is that what you thought? Because <laughs> it's not what I was taught. It's not a cute children's story. It's terrible. But it's also not a story about a barbaric and violent God. When we understand the dominant voices that it was confronting and correcting, we see that Noah and the ark is a story with revolutionary ideas of that, about the sacredness of human life and God's love and commitment to human flourishing, which is a good reminder for us today in, in a culture that has factions that are increasingly not about life, that do not value human life in various aspects of our culture, like the gods of uh, the Babylonian story, there are groups all over our culture that grow burdened at the noise of humanity that grow burdened uh, uh, by the life and human flourishing of various groups of people. Our culture increasingly, as it becomes more and more digital 
becomes more and more disconnected from valuing human life. And this story serves as a good reminder to us that God values human life above all else and is for human flourishing. So I have a few questions for you to reflect on this week. Life is sacred. Your life is sacred. Do you believe this? If not, what would it take for you to believe? God is for human thriving. God is for your thriving. Where do you struggle to believe in God's commitment to human flourishing in your life or the life of the people around you? And then where might God be inviting you to join him in promoting flourishing for the people in your life? I hope that you take some time this week to think through these questions in light of what we just learned together about this story of the flood at the beginning of Genesis that has tripped up so many people for so many centuries. Your life is sacred. What you do matters. God is for you. God is with you. God wants to promote human flourishing in us and through us together. Would you pray with me? God, we continue uh, to thank you for these ancient stories that reveal um, sometimes through layers of misunderstanding, but reveal uh, who you are. Reveal your love and your goodness for us. God, I pray that we would take seriously the idea that we are created in your image, that we would take to heart the sacredness of human life. And God, I pray that we would individually and together as a church, find ways to join you to promote human flourishing in a culture of death around us. God, may we be a conduit for the blessings of Eden to our families, to our jobs, to our communities, to our neighborhoods. May we join you in bringing heaven to earth. We love you, God. Amen.